Compass Media Networks. This is America's First News. This weekend with your host, Gordon Deal. Maintaining weight loss. I'm Gordon Deal with Nicole Murray. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. First full weekend of March. Here's what's coming up this hour. The long-term success of weight loss drugs may be tied to exercise. We'll examine a new study. On the personal finance front, how to maximize your financial aid for college. Entrepreneurs think they have solutions for America's loneliness epidemic. And the guys willing to clean your pool for free with a catch. These guys are entirely fixated on skateboarding's roots. And by that, I mean the gently sloping pools that helped birth modern skateboarding in the 1970s. Jacob Bungie at the Wall Street Journal on skateboarders looking for an empty in-ground pool. Well, the new money study from Wells Fargo finds that U.S. teenagers are showing signs of financial anxiety in much higher numbers than adults. What can families do? Here's fiduciary advisor Chris Carosa. Chris, what's with the anxiety? Well, if you look at uh, recent stories on it, it seems to be pretty big. A substantial number of kids are kind of afraid or unsure about what's going to go on in the future when it comes to their money and their lives. This is communications they're getting from us as parents, I guess? I think it's all around. It's maybe the, the anxieties they see in their parents, what they see on the news, and just in general, whenever you think about the future, it's, a, it's always a little bit unsettling, no matter how old you are. I give, a, give a feel for this study about uh, kind of the way teens think about money. Wells Fargo recently did a survey on how teens look at their money, and that's where you see this, this concern that, that they have, that they're just uh, worried that maybe that they, that they over-focus on how much money they have. So, for example, the survey said that 73% of the teenagers think about, too money, think about money too much, and if you look at adults, only about 60%. It's still a lot of people. And, it, you know, it's, it's just, again, it, it has to do with this just concern about the future. The survey also said that teens are more likely than adults to lie about how much money they have or their family has, what they spend or how much they're worth. And that, now here's the good news. That survey also said that 9 out of 10 teens are open to learning new ways to thinking about money, and that's the key thing. It means that they're interested and they're willing to figure out what their answers might be. Mm. Okay, so back to us as parents, I guess, right? How do we have this conversation? Well, parents can do two things. One, they can just act responsibly when it comes about money, when it comes to money. So when the, the parents talk about money in front of the kids, they can't really show this anxiety, show this worry. They have to show the kids, demonstrate to their children how they calmly address money concerns. When it, when it comes to paying the bills, they can't freak out and say, oh, no, we've got to pay these bills. They say, okay, that's right, so how did we plan to pay these bills, and this is what we're going to do to pay them. In addition, they can talk to their kids specifically about the money situation. And they could explain to the kids how they tackled things, how they do things, how the parents do things, and then give the kids sort of like an exercise on how the kids can then begin to address money. Could it be something as easy as budgeting or 
Uh, and when I say budgeting, a lot of people think, oh, gee whiz, that's a really complicated thing. <laughs> but for a kid, it's not that, e- it's not that hard. Okay. Budgeting might mean, hey, I want to buy a video game. Okay, how much does it cost? Okay, that's how much it costs. How much do you need to save over how much time would you be able to save to get enough money to buy that video game? That's what I mean by budgeting with kids. We're speaking with Chris Carosa, fiduciary advisor, also author of a book called The Parent's Guide to Turning Your Teen into a Millionaire. We're talking about calming the financial fears of kids. So if your kid has some income, how is it best used, say, to create that nest egg? Well, that's where the child IRA comes in. The best way to do that is have the kids set up a child IRA, usually in the form of a Roth, uh, because the kids don't generally earn enough money to to really pay substantial taxes, so there's no reason for, uh, to, to get the tax benefit of a tax-deferred contributory IRA or traditional IRA. So use a Roth IRA so that money can grow tax-free over the lifetime of that child. Uh, but the, the key thing is the child has to work. So the child can work for somebody else, or the child can set up his or her own business and generate money that way. And I will tell you, the entrepreneurial work route actually helps address other financial issues besides saving for retirement because the kids now become much more responsible for managing their money through this business, small business. It could be anything. It could be selling lemonade. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be big, but it gives them something, some skin in the game, let's say. I, I get the sense that there's more interest these days from young adults about personal finance. Are you, are you feeling that? I think so. I think that a lot of it has to do with technology and the fact that much of this technology that younger people engage themselves with can be monetized, whether it's TikTok or YouTube or even, to be honest, uh, video games, playing video games. All these things can generate money if the kids are interested enough to pursue it. And here's the other thing that's pretty cool about it. As entrepreneurs, they already know what the market wants because they are the market. Thanks, Chris. Chris Carosa, fiduciary advisor. Coming up next, cures for loneliness. What does the future of mobility in Michigan sound like? It's the sound of new EV charging stations at our state parks. Discover all the ways MEDC is driving next-gen mobility in Michigan at michiganbusiness.org slash radio. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Our startups providing solutions for our loneliness. Teenagers were reporting record levels of sadness last year. Suicide rates were at a record high. Entrepreneurs are trying to address it. Here's Javi Lever, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Javi, how problematic is loneliness? So loneliness is huge. Uh, Last year, the U.S. Surgeon General declared it an epidemic, uh, saying that social isolation uh, is causing mental and physical harm, kind of like the way you would think about obesity or heart disease and so on. Um, If you're just just looking at the numbers, you know, the suicide rates are at a record high right now. Teenagers are reporting record levels of sadness and feeling a sense of isolation. Uh, So it is really rampant. Loneliness um, is affecting all ages, young people, old people, middle-aged people. It is something that is widespread across the United States right now. Boy, and and, uh, I I guess it's easy to blame COVID. Is that part of the problem or a lot of the problem or this was a problem before COVID? Uh, this, I would not say this is a problem just because of COVID. For sure, during COVID, people felt like they were isolated 
from their family and their friends. But this is something that's much deeper. One of the major factors for the rise of loneliness right now actually is smartphone technology. So, you know, these things, uh, different apps, social media, grocery shopping, um, online shopping, these things are supposed to make our lives much easier. But in doing so, people have become socially isolated. So you think about, you know, your everyday small chit chat that you're having with people at the grocery store, at the coffee shop. Those conversations are now completely cut out because you can just order online. Um, same thing with something like remote work. If you think about the way young people and people in general used to form relationships, right? It was chatting at the water cooler, getting a coffee with a colleague, um, getting to know the people that you sit next to and sort of, you know, hanging out at the office. With remote work, a lot of people say that they don't even know their coworkers anymore. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention um, is just this, uh, sorry, what an, I just totally lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention is the decline in religion um, in the United States. Um, rates of attendance at temples, synagogues, and churches, uh, those rates are in decline. So what, you would, what people would call the third space which is, you know, people hanging out at the grocery store, the coffee shop, um, religious um, locations. Those rates where people are going to those places ha are in decline. So you ha what you have is people are feeling more socially isolated because uh, the outlets and opportunities for people to socialize, those, those are decreasing. Man, we're speaking with Javi Lieber, Wall Street Journal reporter. Her story is called, Can You Solve Loneliness? These startups are betting on it. All right, so get into that a little bit. These startups are who and what are they doing? Uh, one nonprofit that I focused on is called Belong Center. Uh, it is something that I would describe as an Alcoholics Anonymous for the Burning Man set, uh, meaning it is a free-spirited free, free community where they get together um, and they have meditation and breath work and movement and listening exercises and basically getting people together to connect in a physical and emotional way and to talk to each other. Um, the founder of this nonprofit, uh, her name is Radha Agrawal. She started Daybreaker, which is a sober dance community. She started that over a decade ago, and she told me that in starting this community and people having this desire to want to hang out in a alcohol-free environment, she realized that more and more people were really missing uh, a physical, tangible structure for socializing in their lives, and she thought that it was only getting worse. Um, and based on the backing that she has from entrepreneurs who have donated money to her, it sounds like people really believe in it. Um, one person that donated to Belong Center, Kimball Musk, um, you know, he told me that he really believes in something like this. He said that he had experienced loneliness. You know, people think of um, somebody who might be wealthy, rich, and famous, that they might have everything, but actually social isolation and loneliness, it affects everyone. Uh, you also uh, looked at a group called Everyman. What are they doing? Yeah, uh, that's a group. They're based out on the West Coast, but they have retreats uh, and also an online community. And they focus specifically uh, on getting men together. Um, the co-founder and CEO, Lucas Crump, he told me that um, loneliness actually affects men more than average. Uh, and he told me that for men, they form relationships early on in their lives when they go to school. You know, if they're in a fraternity, their first jobs, when they're playing in their sports teams. And then as men progress later in their lives, in their 20s and 30s, they lose touch with a lot of their relationships because of, 
you know, having children, uh, career pressures, and so on. And so with over time, their close relationships fall to the wayside and men experience this sort of social isolation that comes along with our society. Thanks, Javi. Javi Lieber, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Coming up next, the long-term success of weight loss drugs. Hey, it's Gordon Deal. Say goodbye to the hassle of meal prep and hello to ready-to-eat meals from Factor. With Factor, you get chef-created delights approved by dietitians. Choose from over 35 mouth-watering options each week, plus over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons. Stop spending precious time cooking and cleaning. Factor offers restaurant-quality meals in two minutes. From dinners to breakfast, snacks, and smoothies, Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options. It's the convenient choice that's easier on your wallet than takeout, with flexible plans from 6 to 18 meals per week and the option to pause or reschedule deliveries. Factor fits seamlessly into your life with no prep, no mess. Ready for a week of hassle-free, delicious dining? Visit factormeals.com slash deal50 and use code deal50 to get 50% off. Again, use code deal50 at factormeals.com slash deal50 to get 50% off. Hey, glad you're with us. People who exercised while using a weight loss drug kept off far more of their weight after quitting the medication than people who did not work out. Here's this weekend's Nicole Murray. It is Nicole Murray, and here joining me, Washington Post reporter Gretchen Reynolds, talking about those really popular weight loss drugs um, that have spiked in the market these days. Let me start with the basics, maybe for someone who's not paying attention. Um, Can you give me a little bit of a synopsis of how these drugs work? Sure, and and I'll bet there's almost no one who's not paying attention. But (laughs) these drugs, and, and the most famous of them is called Ozempic. Um, but Ozempic is not a weight loss drug. It's actually a diabetes drug. And most of these drugs actually began as diabetes medications. And they work by mimicking a hormone inside of you that affects your blood sugar. But it also turns out that it affects how much you want to eat. It affects appetite. It affects how, how quickly food moves out of your stomach. And the result is that people taking these drugs tend to just want to eat a whole lot less, and they can lose 10 to 20% of their body weight really effectively. That These drugs do work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of... It's been a little bit mind-boggling for me, but I know that based on studies, exercise is actually important to do with it. Can you explain to me why? Sure, and that's that. There are a couple of issues with the, the the drugs, and if anyone has had friends who've gone on them or they have, the the drugs can have a lot of side effects. Um, they make people often feel nauseous, tired, all sorts of things. Also, you're just eating a lot less, so you're very tired. Um, and as a result, many people quit taking the drugs. And if you quit taking the drugs, it's very clear that people almost immediately start putting the pounds back on. And they also tend to put on almost all of this weight as fat, not Ooh. muscle. So you, so you wind up with actually worse body composition um, after you've been taking these drugs. So some scientists have been trying to look at what can we do to try and help people keep the weight off if they stop those drugs and make sure that any weight they gain is 
relatively healthy, that there's some muscle as well as fat. And what they have found is that it's absolutely essential that you exercise. There was a big study that I wrote about that looked at people who took these drugs for a year and either exercised or didn't exercise. And while they took them, everyone lost weight. That the group that exercised lost more, but not a huge amount more. Okay. But w- when people stopped using the drugs for a year, the people who hadn't exercised gained back almost everything that they had lost, the, at least 70% and up to 110% wow. of the weight that they had lost. And again, almost all of it was as fat. The people who'd exercised almost all continued to exercise um, when they weren't taking the drugs, and they regained much less weight. Almost all of them kept off at least 10% of their body weight, which is a significant loss, and they also wound up with much better body composition. They had more muscle and less fat, so they were much healthier. Um, the, The upshot being, if you're going to take these drugs... You need to be exercising. These people exercise for about two hours a week. That's a week, so it's not a lot per day. And it made just an enormous difference in whether they could keep off the weight and whether their body composition was healthy. That is a lot less time per week exercising than I thought you were going to say. People think I'm going to say two hours a day. But this again, this was two hours a week, and it was a mix of sort of aerobic, things like spinning classes, fast walking, and some weight training. So it was not really grueling. And again, half an hour a few times a week appeared to be all that was really needed. And people wound up succeeding at keeping off the weight, which is really the goal. These drugs work unless you want to take them for the rest of your life and they're expensive and they can have side effects, then you really need to think about exercising while you take them and after you stop. That's this weekend's Nicole Murray with Washington Post reporter Gretchen Reynolds. Coming up next, dissecting travel advisories on a cruise. Hey, it's Gordon Deal here to tell you about this game-changing product I use before having a couple of cocktails called Z-Biotics. I can easily feel lousy from just one drink, but I've now found something that helps avoid that miserable feeling the next morning. Z-Biotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink. It's the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists trying to eliminate that crummy feeling the following day. Here's how it works. When you drink, Alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night. Whether you're sitting down at home for movie night or maybe out with friends, drink responsibly and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/gordon to get 15% off your first order when you use Gordon at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/gordon and use the code Gordon at checkout for 15% off. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Gordon Deal with Nicole Murray coming up this half hour. How safe or cruise stops. Also, strategies to maximize your financial aid for college, plus getting your pool cleaned for free. We'll have that story in about 15 minutes. 
Well, cruise operators monitor for potential safety issues well before departure, but is it safe to go on cruises to places where a travel advisory is in place and disembark? Here's Nathan Diller, travel reporter at USA Today. Nathan, what should we know about advisories? Yeah, you know, I think um, one one travel agent I spoke to put it uh, really nicely. I thought just that they are what they are, they're advisories. So they don't necessarily mean you need to uh, drop your travel plans immediately or that you need to rearrange everything, uh, but you just need to be aware of them and then maybe make a personal risk assessment about what you're, what you feel comfortable doing and, and what you think is safe. Um, and they also vary you know, widely. So um, the State Department, for instance, in the U.S. has this rating system that's um, a number rating system. And so um, even if it has an advisory in place, it may be a relatively low number. Um, and then other countries also have their own advisories as well that may be different from the U.S. So um, it's just something to be aware of. It may mean that it's not as safe to go to a certain place, but it doesn't necessarily always mean that. Okay. And, and that means... We're talking about you getting off the ship if you stop in a port, for example, right? Yeah, if there is a really significant threat to safety, a lot of times uh, you'll see cruise ships rerouting away from the area to begin with. So you often won't find yourself in a place that's extremely dangerous. For instance, we've seen a lot of ships rerouting and canceling sailings to avoid the Red Sea um, because there have been so many attacks there in recent months on, on commercial and naval ships. So uh, if there is a really big significant threat like that, you may not even go there in the first place. And then if it is a place where, where the ship is stopping, you always have the option of, of staying on board as well. Um, but yeah, the advisories would be in place for, you know, uh, maybe the country as a whole. And then um, sometimes they're broken down by region as well, but um, not always okay. uh, as specifically as that. We're speaking with Nathan Diller, consumer travel reporter at USA Today. His story is called How Safe Are Cruise Stops? Travel advisories are only one marker for destinations. Um, so so give us some tips here. If there's an advisory, say, or just in general, I mean, what should we think about when we stop in a port? Yeah, I mean, I think um, general safety practices are always uh, great. Uh, one travel agent mentioned, you know, it's always a good idea to travel during the day when you can, um, and you go out and walk around um, while it's light out. Um, maybe traveling with a group is a little bit uh, better idea than going out on your own. Um, booking an organized shore excursion through the cruise line is always a good way to do that because it's sort of taking you from point A to point B and you don't have to worry that you're um, going to get lost. They're going to make sure that you get back on the ship. They've got that information. So um, that's one a good way to do it. Another thing on the front end is just to do your own research about uh, what the risks are in that place. So the advisories are all listed on the State Department's website. Anybody can go access them. And uh, one safety expert that I, I spoke with said that she does like to go look at the other countries' advisories just to get a more complete picture of what's going on in the country because other countries have um, different standards and different uh, criteria for for what constitutes uh, a high risk. So so it's just a good idea to do some research um, like that on the front end as well, so you know kind of what you're getting into and you can make a, a decision. Thanks, Nathan. Nathan Diller, travel reporter at USA Today. Coming up next, maximizing college financial aid. 
For all the ones who get it done, Granger is always there to help. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, 24-7 support, free access to product specialists, and experienced staff at over 250 local branches. Plus, they provide real-time product availability online and have sourcing specialists who can help you track down hard-to-find items. And their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call 1-800-GRANGER, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, glad you're with us. Problems with the new FAFSA have resulted in fewer students applying for financial aid. Some strategies from Jessica Dickler, personal finance reporter at CNBC. Jessica, set this up. Yes, this is a particularly hard year for high school seniors. On top of the usual stresses around college applications, there is this new FAFSA form that rolled out and it has had a lot of problems. It's um, it's still having issues that the U.S. Department of Education is trying to address. And overall, we're seeing that a lot fewer students are filling out the forms and going through the financial aid process, which is really key for next year. So that's that's problematic on a, on a lot of fronts. Boy, are they intimidated Boy, are by the process? Are they, process? are they frustrated, frustrated by, by the glitches in the new system? Like, do we have a read on, on why there are fewer applications? Yes, I mean, it's all of the above. I mean, for starters, the application opened very late. It, it didn't even roll out until December 30th, and it usually starts in October. So there's been um, a lot less time for students to kind of put all of their information in. Plus there are still some sticking points and glitches on the site. And as a result, families are feeling frustrated. Um, That has deterred some from even applying at all, um, which is really the worst case scenario. Don't worry, the government's here to help. Um, The the numbers are like what in terms of fewer students who've applied? Okay, so as of the latest tally, um, maybe nearly 5 million students at this point have submitted a FAFSA, which sort of sounds like a lot, but that's a fraction of the amount that would submit in a normal year. Um, Usually about 17 million students use the FAFSA, and so we're not even halfway there. Goodness. We're speaking with Jessica Dickler, personal finance reporter at CNBC. Her story is called Here Are Some Strategies to Maximize Your Financial Aid for College. All right. So you you piece together kind of three ideas here. What should we look at? Yes. So for starters, students should really be trying to fill out that form as best they can. There are some workarounds for some of the issues that have come up and the Department of Ed kind of lays that out on the on their website. So I would say for starters, definitely fill out the FAFSA. There's no point in delaying at this point because colleges really need that information to start to put together those award packages, which are going to be key. And that would be the number one, my number one piece of advice is to get that FAFSA in. But then there are other things that you can do as well. And one of the things that some of the experts that I talked to some of the experts that I spoke to really suggest is to keep pursuing private scholarships. There's a lot of merit-based aid out there. Um, In fact, I think there's about 1.7 million private scholarships and fellowships available. And that money is often just out there for a whole host of reasons for students who may qualify. So it's really worth looking around. Um, That can really help. Sometimes you don't even need to fill out the FAFSA in order to apply. Mm. And um, a lot of it is grant money, which means we're not talking about loans here. We're talking about free money that does not need to be repaid. 
And you can look online. There's a lot of search sites that help scholarships.com and the College Board all have um, ways that you can look for private scholarships, which would um, which would really come in handy for next year, especially. And then the last piece of advice that I heard from a lot of experts is to go to schools and ask for help if you're really struggling with making ends meet for next year, if you expect your award letter is going to look a little bit different because of the new FAFSA form, um, that's a good reason to reach out to the college financial aid office and explain your situation. One of the major changes in the FAFSA is that there's no longer a break if you have multiple children in college. That was called the sibling discount, and that was really key for families that were juggling more than one college tuition. So without that, families may find that they don't have as much as they need to pay for college this year, and that's a reason to go to to the school and explain your situation. Thanks, Jessica. Jessica Dickler, personal finance reporter at CNBC. Coming up next, how to get your pool cleaned for free. Pure opportunity. It's what Michigan is all about. The opportunity to do more. The opportunity for all businesses to reach their full potential. Visit michiganbusiness.org slash radio to discover all the ways the MEDC is helping Michigan thrive. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. The holy grail for old school skateboards is to be able to skate in an empty backyard pool. For dedicated pool skaters, pitching clean-out services to homeowners is one way of going legit. Another adaptation is offering to sign waivers, absolving pool owners of liability for broken bones and other injuries. Clean the pool, skate for free. That's the model. Here's Jacob Bungie at the Wall Street Journal. Jacob, the trend. Yeah, so these guys are diehard skateboarders. And by that, I mean, they've been doing it for decades, most of them. It's a range of ages. But whereas you might see skateboarders off on the street in the skate park, seeing the the vert ramps, the sort of U-shaped ramps that they have on X Games and stuff like that, these guys are entirely fixated on skateboarding's roots. And by that, I mean the gently sloping pools that helped birth modern skateboarding in the 1970s. And this is when kids were taking the, the sort of banana-shaped boards, which is what were available at the time. They were trying to sort of get the feel of surfing when the waves were down, if they're far from the ocean, they go to these pools and back in California in the 1970s, there was a drought on. There was a lot of water conservation efforts that were being enforced. As a result, you had a lot of empty pools. And so on the one hand, you got this uh, new thing, a skateboard. You've got a lot of places you can potentially do it. And you wind up having a sort of subculture that's, that's <laughs> born from that. That's great. Now, these guys want to do that over and over again and while you have of course municipally sanctioned skate parks across the country there's thousands of them right they're uninspired i'd say by the sort of purpose-made bowls and and ramps that you can find at the skate park they they want the thrill of the hunt they want to find these pools that help birth skateboarding and that's what they're about. Uh, it's really cool. We're speaking with Jacob Bungie. 
deputy bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal in Chicago. His story is called These Dudes Want to Clean Your Pool for Free with a Catch. So referencing the headlines, some of them say, uh, come knock on your door after what's searching Google Earth and say, uh, we see you've got an empty pool. We'll clean it for you. No charge. But you got to let us skate there for a little while. There's a salesmanship aspect to all of this. And they realize that what they're offering is going to be completely alien to a lot of the people that, uh, <laughs> that they approach. And they have to sort of explain themselves, what they're doing, and what they're interested in, all in about 30 seconds, because they figure that's probably about as much time before somebody tunes out, shuts the door on mm-hmm. them, or thinks they're calling the cops. And <laughs> you'll see these guys they look on Google Earth, like you say, they look on Google Maps. That's kind of the starting point. They know the neighborhoods to look at. They know generally when these houses were built because the pools that they're after are from a very specific time period for the most part. They know what the shape looks like from the satellite view to be able to identify when a pool is going to have the right sort of shape to, to be good to skate. And they find a pool They'll go out, they'll drive around these neighborhoods. They might check a few off in the course of a day, going door to door, pull up to the house. And from the moment they get out of the car, they're searching around, scoping out the house. Thanks, Jacob. Jacob Bungie, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Well, we'll finish with this. Potholes. Nobody likes them, except maybe this one pothole. For decades, a peculiar one has charmed passersby in a Chicago neighborhood. Audi.com says you can't help but find the hole amusing. After all, it's shaped like a squished rat. Although the unlucky rodent's imprint has been embedded in the street for years, it didn't break into wider fame until early this year. Over the past couple of months, people have flocked to see it. But on January 19th, fans of the rat hole woke up to a tragedy. Someone had filled the hole, possibly because of noise complaints from people wanting to experience the rat pothole. The famous rat hole had been poured full of a gray, hardened substance. It wasn't quite concrete, but instead some kind of plaster material. The city says it wasn't its crews who fixed the old pothole. Anyway, the rodent imprint didn't stay filled for long. That very same afternoon, a group of locals was hard at work to scrape out the plaster. That'll do it for this hour. For Nicole Murray, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Weekend. This Weekend.